Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And welcome back to the House of Pod. My name is Kave Hoda. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. You know, on this podcast, I get asked all the time, why aren't you talking more about people being swallowed by whales, Kave? Why not? I've heard you. I'm listening. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to improve. And to that end, I'm going to cover it today. To help me do that, I have two special guests, one of which uh, listeners have heard on this show before. He is T.J. Mitchell, New York Times bestselling author of the Jesse Tesca Mysteries that he co-wrote with another previous guest, his wife and pathologist, Dr. Judy Melanick. T.J., welcome back to the show, buddy. Thank you very much. I'm happy thank to be you, here. Thank you for joining us in particular. I know it's not easy. You're you're in a different – you're in tomorrow. Can you explain that to me, How our listeners, how you're in tomorrow? Yeah, I'm coming at you from the future. Uh we live in Wellington, New Zealand, and have lived here for three years now. So for me, I'm over the dateline, and uh, it's tomorrow. That's so wild. I'll never understand it. What's, what is tomorrow like? Is it nice? It is. It's beautiful. It's summertime here. And Wellington, I didn't realize when we moved to Wellington that uh, I'm moving back to New England. Wellington is so far south that I've moved back to the same latitude as Nantucket in Massachusetts. So we have short summers and uh, the rest of the year is kind of gross here in the city. Anyway, the rest of New Zealand is beautiful. That is amazing. When I first talked to you, you guys had recently moved. It's been a couple years now. Um, do you feel like it's a uh, home or are you still thinking maybe you'll come back at some point? Are you playing it by year? What do you, what's the plan here, bud? 
Yeah, we after after COVID, we make no plans. Uh, so we're we're playing it by ear. Uh, we are very, very far away from our families, uh, especially because I come from the Boston area. You almost can't get further away from there. And our our real home is San Francisco. We left our hearts in San Francisco. We love that city. Judy's mom is there. So uh, we will be coming back to spend some significant time in the United States. But then again, we love New Zealand and we may end up trying to shoot for a bi-coastal lifestyle on either side of the Pacific. Wow, that's like a really bi-coastal. That's yeah, nice. if we can achieve that, but who knows? Well, that's fantastic. I can't wait to see you when you come and visit me in San Francisco. I'm going to pretend that's the reason you're coming to San Francisco. Um, you know, uh, you know a lot about being swallowed by uh, giant sperm whales, but I feel like we could probably use someone else who might have more knowledge about this, who might have researched it a little bit more. Uh, so I invited Daniel Krauss, the New York Times bestselling author of novels and TV, as well as film. This is really cool. He's co-authored uh, The Shape of Water and Troll Hunters with Guillermo del Toro. He co-wrote The Living Dead with legendary filmmaker George Romero. And his latest novel, Whalefall, received a amazing review in the New York Times uh, book review. You and I both read it, and I think we both really enjoyed it, right? Oh, yeah. And... And it's it's not the sort of book I would I would normally enjoy. So uh, I'm I'm not I'm not really into um, clock ticking thrillers, which which this is a, a, a the clock ticking thriller. Very good. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really exciting to have you on. Oh, I'm so uh, glad to be here. And I will say that I don't think I'm a big fan of clock ticking thrillers. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I've ever written one before. It's just sort of the subject demanded it. Well. Okay, so let's let's get into this book, Whalefall. Okay, um, I'm gonna try and give a synopsis of it. Um, you can correct me uh, any point if I'm wrong, because I will. I'm gonna tell you right now. You guys are both like smart book writing sort of literary minds who I'm sure excelled at AP English. I am more of a science nerd, and I apologize in advance for all the stupid questions I'm going to ask you that are, are probably laughable in your literary circles, but um, are honest questions I have about writing. And in, I'm going to try and do a synopsis for this book. So a teenager <clears throat> named Jay goes on a solo scuba dive expedition after the death of his father, who he had this complicated relationship with. His father was this sort of great Santini-like character that's a reference from like the early 80s i think for like the the old heads listening in this process uh this is a little bit of a spoiler but i think it's acceptable he is swallowed by a giant sperm whale who may also may or may not be the ghost of his deceased father is that about right did i get it what, what would you how would you how would you rate my synopsis um i'd give it a good solid b Okay, well, damn it, God damn it. <laughs> Listen, you to realize, me is pretty good. No, no, for a doctor, you just told me I can go to hell, basically. You just, oh, okay. um, I can't, I, I can't take that back to my parents, Daniel. All right, what, so let what, me. What could I have done better? Let me give you some constructive notes. Please, I would say that uh, we should mention that he's in the water looking for the remains of his dad, uh, who, who, when he was dying with cancer and his son never came visited him. Uh, threw himself off a boat so he could sort of die in the waters that he loved. Um, and I wouldn't say that the the whale is the ghost of his dad. There's a sense that it may or may not have absorbed the spirit of his dad who died in those same waters. Or it could just be that um, 
J is under the effects of the methane in the stomach and injury and panic and is just um, sort of hallucinating. Just tripping balls. Yeah. That's one of the things I really enjoy about it. There's a lot, um, there's a lot of, I don't, you know, a lot of times there's ambiguity in novels and um, it's lost on me. I'm just like, I kind of want to just know what happened, but this is one of the few books where there's a little bit of ambiguity and it, it helped me. I thought it was nice. It was good to have sort of have that to play with. How we yeah, kind of especially, especially Dan, because you, you use it as a tool. Uh, you use that ambiguity as a tool. You're not, you're not just jerking our chain as, as readers. And it's, it's very impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely agree. So we kind of talked about this a, a second ago, but how how would you classify this book? I mean, like, is is it a thriller? Is it horror? Is it family drama? What I mean, do you have to classify it when you're writing a book? Does your agent or the whatever the company be like, hey, what what is this? And you have to be like, it's kind of all these things. And they're like, we don't want that. We want you to tell us what it is. What is it? Yeah, there's lots of stages along the way of publication where you where you get chances to classify it. Um and they're all confusing. I mean, when you when you sell it, you're usually classifying it as something. This is often it's sold. Books are sold kind of like it's this meets this, and so you, or or it's sort of like it's in the spirit of this, and so you, you're sort of positioning it as maybe it's die hard in a whale. Yeah, Did I've heard that. that. Yeah, <laughs> I've literally heard that one. Did um, you really? I was feeling- yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's been my experience that a lot of buying happens after the book is written, as you said, for, for marketing it. But, but what was your experience in, in actually writing the book, Dan? Did you, were you? Well, no, that's where I was headed next. Yeah. Like that's sort of, then you write the book. And so then it actually is something. And then, you know, I think the most technical thing is that thing that happens is that the book is cataloged. So in the sort of bibliography page of the book at the front of the book, it will literally be, uh, listed as something um and this book has had i think it has both benefited and suffered from uh this confusion about where to put it uh it was it's often called horror but that's not 100 percent right it's technically in that bibliography page listed as sci-fi because oh. it is science related fiction i guess mm-hmm. and that has confused a lot of people because if you're if you're a, a uh, an organization that goes strictly on bibliography, like if you're someone who works in libraries, for example, um, you're probably going to file the book where the book tells you to file it. Or if you're making an end of the year list, for example, and I know this has happened to that I've been told this, um, and you want to put Whalefall on your best horror of the year, that's, you, you can't if you're a library um, advanced journal because – you can't. Uh, it says it literally is telling you, it's instructing you that it's sci-fi. Um, but the upside to that is I think it has expanded my readership a lot. Uh, and that isn't all, usually isn't the case when you have confusion. But in this in this case, I think has helped because it is mm-hmm. being called general general literary or thriller or horror or sci-fi or, you know, some combination. It's funny because sci-fi is the one thing I would have said it's not. But it works. I mean, it makes it makes sense to me that it would it's almost better in a way if you don't have to pin it down. But I know that's also a challenge. Uh, I guess we don't we don't have a word for fiction that's scientifically based. That's not like, you know, medical fiction. Right. It, cetology. We should have it stuck in cetology is where it should be. C- in what? 
cetology, the study of whales. Oh, right. It's a infamous uh, chapter in Moby Dick where <laughs> where Herman Melville just talks about whales. <laughs> Gets a nice little niche there for you. Yeah. But speaking of the science of it, it does seem like you really uh, research this quite a bit. Um, I'm wondering where you turn to for this. You know, uh, this is a, I've talked to Mary Roach is a recurrent guest of this show. We've talked to her a couple of times about her books and the process that she goes through to, to research books we've discussed, I think is really fascinating. And one of her books, Gulp is all about the GI system, uh, which I'm wondering actually if that played a role here in this, in this novel, but how did you go about it? Where did you start? How did you do the research for this? Cause it does yeah. seem, I'm not a, expert in the uh, you know sea mammalian life I, I do know the gi tract very well because that is my specialty but um how did you how'd you go about the research for this well um i will tell you that my favorite review of this book which i just got was from smithsonian magazine because it was reviewed by a whale scientist uh and so it was the first time i actually was like i did it <laughs> i, I yeah. pulled it off in front of the whale scientist uh, <laughs> but yeah uh um, Mary Roach was a, a key a key uh, point of how this book got written, actually. Um, so when I had the idea one night um, and then wrote her first thing the next morning and asked her, hey, have you ever, in all your interviews, talked to anyone who said you could live inside of a whale? And at that moment, I had really forgotten that she had written Gulp. I even owned Gulp, but I just had forgotten. Yeah. And she said, yeah, go get Gulp from your bookshelves. And there's like two pages where I talked to this guy who said it could happen. Uh, and so she connected me with him and I talked to him that day and he was, he sort of reiterated it. He's like, yeah, if it's a certain, if it's a specifically a sperm whale, um, it was a big sperm whale and the diver was slender enough. And, uh, and uh, as an aside, that was the beginning of me thinking of the diver as a young person because it literally needed to be someone who wasn't too big. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where the character began. Um, and so this guy, Paul Clapham, then said, you know, who you really need to talk to are these uh, two other scientists, um, Laura Horstman, who knows a lot about whale stomachs, and Joy Wiedenberg, who knows everything about whale throats. Um, and so in very short order, I had them all on the line, and they just were, all three of them just, just seemed to be ex really excited by the project. And were with me through the whole writing and just were, I mean, I, I roped in other experts along the way as a, on a need to know basis, you know, as I was figuring little things out, but those three were absolutely key throughout the entire thing. And they came up with a million great ideas and also prevented me from doing things that I wanted to do because it wasn't scientifically viable. Like what would you mind telling us? Uh, you know, I have to try to remember. I know that sometimes they would lead me certain directions and I'd be like, oh, so could he be pooped out? Yeah, I'm sure at some point in, yeah, in like yeah. the first conversations. Like I did an event where a little kid uh, sort of in a quiet, ashamed voice said, could he just be pooped out? And so I'm sure at some point early on, I just I asked when I was really just getting my bearings, could he be pooped out? And I'm sure they said, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, unless he was like, you know, liquefied, of course, by the acids. Um, so I, can, I don't know if I can think of any specific ones, but there were yeah. cool things that I wanted to do and ideas that I had that were definitely shot down. Yeah, yeah, but like that rigor paid off because that you can you can feel that in the read that uh, that 
you're there there aren't a lot of options you you haven't gone you haven't gone uh reaching right. for things that it seems like wouldn't be possible yeah it's it's a, it's interesting you know when we were talking about the um movie adaptation which is something we can, can't talk too much about now yet but we were we were thinking you know you're, you're having to choose what you put in and what you put out and there's nothing else that can be put in because like there's nowhere else you can go I've exhausted everything that one could try as far as we know. Uh, so what's there is what's possible pretty much. It is interesting. I mean, we might as well just touch on it a little bit and we don't have to go into great detail, but when I was reading it, it clearly, there's a lot of components of it where I'm like, I could see, it sounds crazy. It sounds like a difficult movie to make, but at the same time, it almost seems like it's inevitable and it seems like it, it's going to happen. Like, like a Timothy Chalamet young looking guy who's really slender will play this and love the role because it's just him the whole time, just his face the whole time with some flashbacks. And I was thinking about that a lot as it, do you, when you're writing a book, does that ever come into your mind? Are you like, or do you have to force it out of your mind? Like what would the movie be like? What would the music in this scene be like? What is that ever going on in your mind when you're writing? Uh, never, never. Um, I think in, for me, entertaining thoughts like that would just be death. Uh, I really don't want to put any kind of primer, primacy on the on in a, any kind of other media adaptations whatsoever. I really am, although I dabble in film and TV, I really am a novelist, and that's what I want to be. Um, and I, I would would never uh, change something in a novel so that it was more movie friendly. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that's a hard, that would be a hard no for you if you could? I mean, I know sometimes you don't have great control over what happens. It's famously people like that, ha that, that happens to writers when they make a movie like Pierre Benchley, Jaws, I think we probably should talk about. But like, mm -hmm. is there something that would be a hard no for you if they wanted to cut out? You're like, no, this has to stay. Is there certain things, you didn't have to say what those are because I don't want you to get spoilers, but are there certain things where you just would not be willing to, to change for a movie? Well, that's tough. There's not a lot they could add to it because I've exhausted all the possibilities. Uh, inevitably, there will be things taken away, though. Um, and I can't think of anything that would be, you know, more important than another. Um, you know, I have, there's certain bits that I, I certainly like, but in his survival, like, you know, maybe that you know if they say like, we, we we can't afford to build the second chamber of the stomach well that'd be a huge bummer but it's not like this it would be the the killer that would ruin the movie you know well look uh, can, I, can i tell you what i think yeah because right? I, I don't i don't obviously don't oh, have an answer here i'm gonna tell you what i think they might want to change and i'll just beep this when it plays so people can't really hear what it is and they'll think it's something really dramatic but in the process in his attempts to escape um, he loses his like mm. I felt like that was the one thing they're probably gonna be like oh he's been through a lot already to make him go through that it seems yeah. like too much and I feel like that would be the thing that would just get like cut but I'm wondering yeah. I mean is that how important would that be to you would, or is that something that you think would not be a major fundamental theme that would be important I feel like um, I feel like I'm uh, on meet the press and the, the, they always say like I don't want to deal in theoreticals. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, like I know the the 
the director who's not been made public um, really uh, likes the sense of uh, at the end of it, how physically torn up he is. So yeah. I think some of that will be maintained. Um, you know, really specific questions like that, though, I, I don't really know. So let me let me ask you about that, too, because you, you put this kid through a lot, this character. You put him through a lot mentally and physically, um, and it's a ordeal that he's forever altered because of. And I know this is a stupid question, but but why? Was it just what you felt was natural? Is it what you felt was realistic? Is it what you felt was important to to make this to give the story weight or was it just where the story had to go where or is that because or is it because that that's every man's journey with his dad which is one of the things that this book is about yeah i think there's there's a number of things that just felt right about beating the, the crap out of this kid uh number one is just that you know it's crazy to think i went light on him but it could have been a lot worse like there are numerous um moments in the book where he could have easily been killed um and uh you know he at least makes it until the end of his uh air tank i, I guess i won't tell you what happens at the very end yeah um, but yeah th there was a sense of wanting him to be physically destroyed by the end to sort of kind of counterpoint how against all odds he's almost spiritually healed at the end, like in some ways, he's ending this in a much better spot than where he started, even though physically he's, you know, in the worst spot of all. But, but, you know, if he can, if he can live through this, you get the sense that even though he's torn to pieces, he's going to be okay. In fact, he's going to be a little bit better. Um, and it's sort of what TJ was saying. It is the whole thing is sort of a physicalization of the kind of mental uh strain and fight he has he's had all his life with his dad um which often was physical who's yeah. a fantastic character by the way the the way that you draw the dad as as the book progresses is is really remarkable thank you i agree you know what I, i'm i'm a guy who didn't grow up with religion um i definitely didn't grow up with any church any no christian catholic background here but i i do and tell me, maybe it's just coincidence, but I, I felt like there's a lot of religious themes through this book. Um, and I have to ask, you know, growing up and in, in reading, especially then when, you know, when I was growing up, all the English classes, all the AP English classes were like uh, a separate piece and all these like great books, very Western centric. And they always had religious themes. And it was always like, don't you see it's a Jesus reference? And I was always uh -huh. like, I was always like, yeah, sure, but what what so? <laughs> like why does that make a book better? So let me let me ask you, what why do why do people put religious themes in books? Is it to somehow help people understand uh religion in a way or is it just because it seems cooler and smarter if you do? Tell me tell me why. Uh the main reason is that I want to be cool and smart. <laughs> Work, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, no, I'm not a religious person at all, but I write a, a, a lot about religion because I find it uh, endlessly fascinating. It's one of the things I, I just can't stop writing about, although I have no particular belief system myself. Um, in, in When I came to a Wellfall, I knew that people would bring a couple things to the table with them. Like they would probably bring Moby Dick 
Maybe they'll bring a little bit of Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the biggest thing they'd probably be, bring was Jonah. Like everyone knows the story of Jonah. And it is this, it's not just a biblical tale. It, it goes back before the Bible. It is like one of the first stories people came up with this idea of being swallowed, you know? And so we, we kind of go through life, I think with uh, our brains, with the memory of this time, not, not just the myth of it, but the, the real time when we were early humans and could be swallowed and chewed up and eaten by things. And that, that kind of caveman part of the brain is still in there and can be triggered. And I think that's why this story in history and in Wellfall specifically has gets such an immediate reaction from people when they hear the, the sort of uh, plot synopsis of it. So I, as long as these things are there, we're going to give them anyway, in this case, Jonah. I was like, well, let's let's use it, you know, and th- some of the other things like Steinbeck, that was just that's just because you can't walk two feet in Monterey, California without seeing yeah. signs about a cannery row and John Steinbeck. Uh, so there were just things that sort of kind of like the whale mouth or whale throat determine how what age the character can be. There are just these sort of outer factors that end up influencing uh, the things I put in the, the story. And also, I really I had this thought that the and and it's pretty blatant in the book how um, Jay's sisters and mom they're kind of they go to church they're just kind of regular church people but his dad is really anti-religion, um, but but he's not he's kind of the most spiritual person in the entire book you know his church is the ocean mm-hmm. and um, I had this thought that the that whales were sort of like his angels and and the reason the reason i thought that was that the whales are mammals right and so they die just thousands of feet down but they have to keep coming back up to breathe and i just had this image really mm. of the whale as an elevator between worlds like there was mm. sort of this underworld and then this overworld is almost like a heaven upside down mm-hmm. uh, and it just started to feel like a rich thing to mine not for religion, religion in particular, but more like people's idea of wanting what what Mitt, the dad in the book, calls awe. Like that's why they go on well watching trips. That's what, and that's why they go to church. They're seeking this sense of awe that when you recognize something big, whether it's a whale or a sanctuary of a church, it allows you to realize the presence of smallness that uh, you are small and therefore the things that are bigger can create these certain feelings in you. So it's all kind of wrapped up in that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and, uh, the whale, whale fall itself, it's right there in the title. A whale fall is a whale dying in order to bring life mm-hmm. to uh, everything else in the ocean. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something about religious themes that's really big and, and there's a reason they, they last. There's stories that connect with people on some deep level. And that's, those themes i could see how they could get into your works even if you're not religious i I, that totally makes sense there's some important sort of themes that just connect with people and it is funny because it's it's it is something that we've always heard of there 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 are is this deep connection to this like tale of being swallowed by something so massive like a whale but at the same time you know this was so original this wasn't I didn't see, I've never seen anything like this before. So that's, what's really interesting about it. It's cool. And, and, and as a compliment to you, I think that you were able to take a really old theme and make it like scientific and new and exciting in a way, which I think is very cool. 
Well, the one thing that I did do before I wrote Mary Roach that fateful morning was to to see if anyone had written this book before. Yeah. Because it seemed to me that in the thousands of years this story has sort of existed, somebody would have taken it seriously in a sort of not metaphorically or sort of absurdly, but scientifically seriously. And I was shocked that nobody had. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's really hard. It's it would yeah. be easy to tell the story metaphorically or or as yeah. a fantasy, but the way you told it is it quickly is became clear why no one had tried. Yeah, well, so speaking of the difficulties in it, in what might have been sort of tricky situations, let me uh, let me ask you this: in in the the book, you you talk about some things like echolocation, the the sheer sonic blast that these sperm whales can produce, the suction that they can make. A lot of this stuff you talk about, some of it, correct me if I'm wrong, some of it I have to assume is just theory because I don't, I can't feel like we know that much about the sperm whale. So how much of this was you working off theory from, from scientists who study it and how much of it was maybe a stretch or, or how did you decide to settle on those things that were kind of questionable? Sure. I mean, I'm working with pretty experts who are pretty much, you know, really up on the latest on whales. So generally they were able to guide me and say, this is definitely known. This is largely accepted. And then this other thing is debated. Um, and as you would imagine in science, over time, uh, those things solidify. The things that are people are leaning towards believing end up becoming firmed up into belief. And the, the things that are debated kind of that can go either way. Um, you know, there. I think there used to be you know, just based on my conversations with them, there used to be more resistance to the idea of whale suction that they can uh, draw in prey. But, you know, one of the most convincing arguments, and I think it's in the book um, against that, is that whales have been found whose bottom jaws don't exist anymore. They've been knocked off in battles or in boat propellers long ago, and yet their stomachs are filled with squid. Um, so there's just, there's almost no other way for them to be eating so much rather than sucking these, uh, squid in. There's one thing. So, so basically the book is, is pretty airtight. There's one little, uh, biological thing in the book that is still theoretical. Like some people believe in it. Some people aren't sure. Um, and that is explained in the author's note. Uh, I don't want to give that away, but I'm, I'm very upfront about the, that, um, this is, you know, this is a thing that my experts believed in, but they acknowledge that it's it's still debated. Yeah, and that's what makes the book not science fiction, actually, that, that it is fiction about science, is that you don't go off on flights of fantasy. You uh, restrict yourself to the science that you know you can at least um, probably get away with. There's, I guess the exception to that is there's a part in uh, near sort of near the end of the book where it gets a little cosmic where he's in the, the stomach and he begins, he has like essentially a conversation with the whale slash dad. That is, I don't know if you call it science fiction ready, but it is, it, it, it passes through the veil of realism. Yeah. It has that contact meets the dad sort of scene where it could be explained scientifically very easily. It's just the him, you know, tripping out on, on lack of oxygen and methane and all that. Um, but it also could be more than that, which is what's really, uh, what's really interesting about the book that you keep doing really well. Um, 
Speaking of uh, tripping balls, stay tuned and listen to these commercials that are all about, I'm assuming, drug use, mostly probably dick pills. Sorry. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And we're back. Um, there's a lot more i have to ask you about the book you know one thing that i really like is the pacing of the book um it's something i really appreciate it's kind of like the movie aliens works so well because they don't introduce the monster for so long and the 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 big things in that twist the movie and and, and start it really kick start it don't happen right away and it builds up it builds up to the point where you're almost like when is something going to happen here? And then the story really kicks into overdrive. You do a really good job with that in this book. Like, is that something you had to to purposely slow yourself down to get to that point where the the whale is introduced? Does that do you is pacing something that you're really considering when you're writing it? Oh yeah, I mean pacing is a big thing. Every book has its own pacing, um, and that's one of the like I'm just I'm about I don't know fifteen thousand words into a a new book that I'm writing right now. And it's like, it reminds me that at the beginning of a new book, pacing um, is always the big challenge because uh, it's, it's the reason the first quarter of any new book is the hardest. Cause so I don't know how it, I don't know how, I don't know what the pace is yet. I don't know how quickly, I don't know how short the chapters are. I don't know how long the sections are. I don't, I don't know any of that stuff until I very slowly figure it out. With this one, you know, I, I I'm sure I didn't go into it thinking, okay, this this is going to be the first book where I do super short chapters. Like that wasn't a part of the plan. It was more that, you know, once I happened upon using the PSI as chapter titles, so you could see the air draining away, and the use of flashbacks, I sort of saw that the more often I can see that PSI clicking down, the more tense it is. And the, and more you feel like Jay feels like he's very aware of how much air he's got left. Um, and then I realized by, by doing that and mixing up with uh, flashbacks, it began to feel like you're gasping for air every time you had a little chapter break. Um, and so uh, I just really ran toward that and, and embraced the short chapters Mm-hmm. Um, and if anything, I tend generally toward longer chapters. So this was a real break for me. Um, and it just, I mean, as soon as I started it, it just felt right. Um, 
I didn't struggle that much with pacing with this one because I happened upon it early and mm -hmm. it just worked. Oh, okay. Because you, you, I was, I was about to ask it. It sounds like you're saying that you worked out the pacing in the course of writing the book. Uh, did you do a lot of uh, preparation, a lot of outlining for this book? Is this a, you know, a, a plotting book and not a pantsing book? Do you know the difference, Kaveh? Oh, yeah. you know, plotting I and don't, but I, I can kind of guess, but, but go, yeah. please. Pantsing please. means by the seat of your pants. It means you start writing and then you, you keep working it out as you go along. You have a vague idea of what you're doing. Plotting is you usually write a long outline and then uh, start writing once you've got everything laid out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I tend to be a plotter and for a book like this that's so technical it had to be plotted yeah uh, because I knew I had to know where he was going to be every single second um so this was exhaustively plotted uh, I knew every single thing that was going to happen because there was a limit to what could happen um before I was writing yeah and one of one of the one of the pitfalls of of doing that is you could end up uh, with a book that that the reader doesn't feel like every page is a surprise, you know, because you've got it all laid out in front of you, you could almost you know, subconsciously give away the game, and you did not do this at all. It uh, we didn't, I we we couldn't see we couldn't see the engine, um, you know, un underneath the vehicle that we were that we were riding along in. I'll tell you, TJ, you know, I was going to ask you that too, then because you're you also are a very gifted writer and. Uh, we talked about your your books on this show before too so like you though are writing with someone else how so do you have to be a plotter at that point i mean i can't imagine you can really fly by the seat of your pants when it's both of you right because that could be kind of complicated a lot of butting of heads that must be a difficult thing to do right yeah well that's why i'm I'm feeling such an affinity for for dan right now funnily enough because i i do i write with my wife dr judy melanick who is a forensic pathologist. She does autopsies for a living. But the way that we succeed as a married couple who writes together is we have no overlapping skill set. She has the stories, she has the science, she knows how police work, she knows how a courtroom works. And I'm one of those writers who loves to be locked in a room just wrestling with adjectives all day. So we never step on each other's toes. And so one of the constraints that I have as a writer, because in, in, in writing our fiction, one of the things we really wanted to get right is we wanted to reflect what Judy does every day in reality. So she never lets me get away with, well, couldn't they just find a bullet that's shaped like this? And then they know, you know, like she doesn't let me make stuff up. Everything that that we write is rooted in science. Uh, and I felt the same way in 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 Whalefall that that uh that Dan was not making stuff up. Oh, and, and when it comes to pantsing and plotting, our our first novel. First cut, we actually it was it was largely pantsed, and uh, then the second novel, Aftershock, was was very carefully plotted. So we've done both, uh, and uh, both have their both ways of writing have have their charms as as a as a as a writer. I'll tell you. You know, it's funny. I keep thinking pants, and when you say pants, and I think about the act of pulling someone's pants down. Um, but like, no, I do. I mean, I, I did appreciate that approach in, in both of your guys' works. There's only one issue I have as a gastroenterologist. And again, I have to preface this. I'm a human gastroenterologist. I am not a whale gastroenterologist. But you refer to the grinding of the of Jay while he's in the stomach at one point as peristalsis, which is not totally incorrect. But really what was happening in the stomach at that point was segmentation segmentation where the stomach is really grinding itself down now again 
I don't know what the whale people call it. They may call it the whole thing peristalsis. But in humans and other animals, the stomach will do some grinding to help break down the food. And that is segmentation. The peristalsis is the downward movement through the thing. So it's not totally yeah, off. Dan, you, you got away with it with the whale doctors, but uh, not, just, not just, Dr. Hoda. I'm just, yeah. I'm just making it one small point. One small point. But uh, everything else, spot on. Well, allow me to retort. Uh yeah. Uh, I, I will say that yes, the uh, the whale scientists uh, always use peristalsis. Um, I don't know if they're. I mean, they're they know what the, I would assume they know what they're talking there's, about. There's no whale gastroenterologist to my knowledge, but <laughs> well, I did have a, I did have a whale stomach expert. Expert. I don't know what to tell you. It's all right. No, I'm gonna have a word with him or her. Um, let me tell you what else I really enjoyed about this book. Uh, there is this theme of claustrophobia that I sort of picked up on. And and I, I don't like claustrophobia. I don't not like claustrophilic. I don't know what the word would be. But there is this theme of claustrophobia, both him in very tight spaces, like a whale esophagus, for example, but also like more than that, his depression, his anxiety, his emotions. When you have those things, it can feel incredibly claustrophobic. When people are really stressed out and really anxious or really depressed, the world doesn't seem big and wide and open. Things seem really like condensed and small and collapsing around you. Um, and I felt like that was really beautiful. I don't really have a question. I just want to just want to say good job doing that. Maybe you meant to, maybe, maybe you didn't. But when you write something really nice like this, I think it, these themes tend to come out either way. But that was something I really appreciated about the book that you nailed in a way that a lot of books don't do about those emotional uh, trauma. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that was for sure, I did want, I mean, I've always been interested in, in closed room stories. Like um, a lot of those are often end up being plays, but there's movie versions and book versions too. Uh, where people are in a, a very small space and they're they're confined there for the entire work, and to me, I've always really um, admired those those kinds of stories because it really um, it really sh makes the artist have to kind of prove themselves because you, you're taking away, especially if it's real time, which most of them are, you're taking away all of these sort of quiet um tools that you have in writing a book which is our gently uh which are basically time jumps you know like we we forget as writers how much we can get away with by cutting away from different scenes until you remove that ability and then it's uh i've done two books now in real time and they are really really hard um there there's nowhere to hide there's nowhere to um there's no way to, to band-aid things that you're you're not as strong as as a writer um so this to me was the ultimate um one room story like i have my like I, i'm a collector of one room stories that I, I love and you know there's one that takes a movie that takes place entirely in a bathroom and then there's that probably the 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 the, the tightest spot up until whale fall was this movie buried which is entirely takes place in a coffin I think of the same movie yeah Yep, yep. Um, and well stomach, even tighter. Uh, so I, I really appreciated that from just a challenge perspective. But yeah, you're right. It does feel it does feel right, you know, like 
uh, this book is set during the pandemic and during the flashbacks, uh, Jay is, it really does more than even normal. He's isolated and he does feel like he's in this cave. You know, he can't really go anywhere. The one place he, he should go to talk to his dad on his deathbed, he doesn't. Um, he's just, everything seems to be kind of squeezing down on him and before it literally is squeezing down on him. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautifully done, man. Um, let me, let me ask you about just writing about Marine life in general, you know, Jaws, which in my mind is one of the few examples, you could disagree with me on this one of a, of a film that was better than the book, but it, it, it famously had an effect on shark life, like shark numbers decreased after the book. I don't know if it's all due to the book, but certainly did it help the public perception of sharks and Peter Benchley himself was he expressed remorse about writing it for that reason. He actually went further to be like a conservationist. He would pretty passionately advocate for the protection of sharks. But when you're when you write about marine life, was was Jaws in your mind the that the effect that it had? Uh was that in your mind at all when you were writing about this? That's really interesting. Um, because I thought about Jaws a lot. Um I, I I really like Jaws. Uh, I I really like the book as well, and I'm very aware of the work that um, Peter and Wendy Benchley did throughout Peter's life, and Wendy's still doing it. I mean, they're tremendous um, people. Uh, I, but I knew I wanted this. I wanted the whale to be as much as I love Jaws. Uh, I wanted the whale to be the opposite of of Jaws. Like it's not the villain. It's not. Um, it has no nefarious intent upon Jay. It, it almost doesn't even know Jay is there. It's more like a, a, a God, you know, like he's just, Jay just got swallowed up and until he does something in the stomach that pains the whale, the whale could not care less. And I liked that kind of almost Lovecraftian feel to it with like there's just these gods and we are specks of flotsam to them we mean nothing to them um again it works into that theme of of awe as really what religion is um yeah the, the yeah. whale is the whale is a force of nature it's just just part of the ocean that where where everything can kill you and that's why i i thought it was also a, a great idea to set it specifically at at cathedral beach like where did you why did you set it in monterey in in particular uh monastery beach so sorry monastery beach i set the book in uh, so, so just south of uh monterey is monastery beach um so named because there's a monastery there that overlooks the beach and i chose that because uh one of my diving experts um before i started writing the book and i was interviewing him um, and I was getting his take on where I should set the book. And he lives in Monterey, so he was biased, but he was like, look, there's this beach out here that's one of the most dangerous beaches in the, the country. And it has this nickname, Mortuary Beach, because it's so dangerous. And I thought, ooh, I like that. Mm -hmm. um, and and then the, bonus, the bonuses were all packed in. It was dangerous, had a cool name. There were sperm whales there just off the coast. There was a monastery, which worked into sort of the the spiritual elements of the book, it um, just seemed perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's a live, lively, lively fishing community too. So you can, mm -hmm. you could easily yeah. uh, develop that, that job for the two of them. Yeah. 
yeah, I grew up not far from there. And it was real nice. It was nice to to read about that. I mean, you could tell that you sort of had, I don't know if you actually have any background there, but it did, it was sort of a loving depiction of the area, despite like the downsides of it, it being a dangerous beach, the beach community, diver community being sort of mean to Jay in general. There is sort of like this affection that's clear from it that I really appreciated. And it is a beautiful area. It's a perfect setting for it. How much scuba diving knowledge did you have before all this? Because you write about it in great detail. And I don't know scuba diving, but it seems like you also studied that really well. Was that something you actually do or is that just something you research? Um, well, I learned to do it for the book. I had never done it before. Um, and I'm far, far, far from an expert now. I mean, I just learned the basics. Um, just could understand what he was, what more or less just the, you know, what the suit feels like, what it sounds like in there, just kind of the, the real basics. I know he was going to be in a scuba suit the whole time. Um, but I have, you know, I grew up in landlocked Iowa and live in Chicago. I, before starting this book, I had no knowledge of whales, very little of the ocean, none on, in scuba diving. This was the ultimate don't write what you know book because although I knew nothing about any of these things, I was excited to dive into all of them, uh, so to speak. And I, and I did know a lot about the, the father son thing. So I, there was part of it that I was really plugged into. Um, I just needed to learn to take several months and just study all these other things sort of intensively. That see that's commitment, TJ. How many yeah. things have you done? I've I have witnessed one autopsy and that was enough. All right, we got to get you cutting into some yourself. Um, okay, let's let's uh, cut it. That I've kept you for so long. Um, last thing I, I'm going to ask, and, and it's not really a question, but have you have you heard of the Decemberist song "Mariner's Revenge"? Maybe it does sound familiar. After this book, it is my second favorite a piece of art about being swallowed by a whale. If you have the time and opportunity, I would like you and all our listeners to listen to the Mariner's Song by the Decemberists. It's a fantastic piece. No, I just checked my uh, music library and I do have some Decemberist stuff, but not that one. So this is new to me. That's the best. The guy's a great writer too, by the way. He actually writes books, but like he, that's such a literary uh, band and that song in particular. Uh, But anyways, second favorite uh, being swallowed by a whale themed piece of art. Yours is number one, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Uh, what a great book. We obviously recommend it. Where can people find it? And what else can we plug for you? Well, you can find it anywhere where there are books being sold. Um, you can find me at danielkraus.com. Um, I don't know. I've got um, my next adult book is out um, next fall will be more aggressively announced in a couple months. And then I've got a uh, World War One set novel that is coming out the fall after that. Um, so those yeah. are the next two things anyway. And you, I'm assuming you can't say anything about the next book that's coming out? Um, not really. Um, no one listens. But, Don't worry. No one listens. How's a pod squeezy? I'll say this much. It is... Um, it is a collaboration with someone I've collaborated with before, and that's coming out next fall. Um, and then I start sort of this new 
book deal I have with Simon and Schuster. And the first one of that will be the World War One. Okay. Thing. Very cool. Very cool. Very oh, cool. Great. And TJ, where where can people find your delightful books as well? Uh, you the probably the best place is uh, our website is drworkingstiff.com, drworkingstiff.com. That's a reference to the title of our, our first book, which was called Working Stiff. That's a nonfiction book. And then the two novels, First Cut and Aftershock. Uh, or if you look for my co-author's last name, Melinek, M-E-L-I-N-E-K, you can find our works. Don't try Googling Thomas Mitchell, that's me, because uh, there's a million of us. That's right. Actually, TJ Mitchell, if you Google you, it's you and a football player. So, I mean. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Not much of a difference there. It's pretty much the same. All right. You guys are great. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. If you haven't already, please rate and review us at iTunes. Thank you to Dean for help with production. You guys rock. Thank you. Bye. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.